Our text this morning is from John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your water, the water of life, on us. May it be a well springing up in our hearts to water this town, this state, this nation, and this world. Father, bless our reading of your word that we might hear and believe and receive the water of life. And in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and thank you very much for having me. It's really a delight uh, to see you. It's funny how many of these faces have so many intersections uh, with uh, our life back in Moscow and, and some of our travels, so it's a delight to be with you all. Um, I, back home in Moscow, I preach at our downtown service, and at that service we've been working through the Gospel of John, so this is kind of a distillation of a number of points from that series so far. We're, we're about two-thirds of the way through, so we're pulling from the first two-thirds of the book so far. Um, now, in this, this text that I um, read here, it says, sorry, verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cries out. So he's, this is at the, the very end of the feast, and the feast that he's mentioning here is the Feast of Booths. Right? That's, that's where we are uh, in the Gospel of John. Jesus has just come to the end of the Feast of Booths, and he gets up to speak. Now, the Feast of Booths, if you know your, um, your Old Testament festival, you, you've got three feasts that are pilgrim feasts, where basically three times a year everybody is supposed to head back to Jerusalem and, and celebrate a feast in Jerusalem. It's a pilgrim feast because everybody's supposed to travel back to Jerusalem for these feasts. And the, the Feast of Booths is one of these feasts. And, and the Feast of Booths celebrates kind of two things. If you're, if you're reading in the Old Testament the description of the Feast of Booths, first of all, it's celebrating God's provision of the Israelites during the Exodus. The fact that he brought them out of uh, Egypt and during that time he, he, he cared for them. He made sure that they were... Uh, fed and watered and, and, and protected. And so to acknowledge that they spend this whole time during the Feast of Booths, they move out of their houses and they live in booths, tents. And so it's like, if you can imagine, I suppose, a church camp out for a week. That's basically what it is. But everybody's coming to Jerusalem and camping outdoors for the whole week to celebrate God's provision of Israel during that time. But it's also um, the Feast of Booths is celebrating God's provision for Israel, the new land, in terms of the way he gives them uh, um, a good harvest, that, that he's actually caring for them and making sure that they have uh, plentiful crops. So those are the two things you see um, in the Old Testament. And, and what's interesting, the Feast of Booths, or you'll hear it called Tabernacles, or if somebody refers to the Hebrew, it's Sukkot, and Sukkot is just booths or, or tabernacles. It's the tents that they stay in. But what's really interesting is that at this time, of all the three feasts, the, the pilgrim feasts that Israel celebrated, like I tend to think of Passover, that's got to be the big one, right? Um, because we think of Passover as celebrating the Exodus and Jesus as the Passover land, so surely that's the biggest one. But actually at this time, the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, was the most popular. This was the feast that was the biggest celebration that kind of dominated everybody's uh, world. The Feast of Booths, um, when you read about it, it, it's kind of like if you could imagine um, uh, maybe Christmas, the 4th of July, and your birthday 
all happening on one day except for spread out over about eight days. That's what the Feast of Booze was like. And it was the party of all parties that you did not uh, want to miss. Um, the reason for this popularity was a tradition that had developed during this feast that was called the celebration of the water drying. So I, I told you the elements of the Feast of Booze that you can get from the Old Testament. But wh what's interesting is after the Old Testament has been composed, between then and the coming of Jesus, they refer to that as the intertestamental period because it's between you know, the Old Testament and New Testament. So in that intertestamental period, traditions kind of develop around the Feast of Booze, and it changes a little bit how they celebrate the feast. And, and one of the things that was really influential in the way these traditions developed is this passage from Zechariah, Zechariah 14, so right towards the very end of the Old Testament. And we're right at the very end of the book of Zechariah. He says this. I'm in Zechariah 14, start at verse 16. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles, booths, or Sukkot. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. Uh, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And, and it goes on a little bit more about that. But basically, the, the, there's a curse that's pronounced as a prophecy that a time will come when anybody that doesn't come to the Feast of Booze, there'll be a curse on them, and the specifics of that curse is there'll be no rain on them. Now remember I said that the Feast of Booze was kind of connected to the, the crops and the harvest. It's because um, the Feast of Booze happens in the calendar just like right before the rainy season in Israel. Um, and incidentally, this is actually really interesting because last week would have been the Feast of Booths. Um, so the last day of the feast would have been, I believe, uh, last Sunday. Um, and so we're, we're in the annual calendar like pretty close to when this would have happened. Anyhow... Um, so the Feast of Booths happens right before the rainy season, and, and there's this, at the end of the Old Testament, there's this prophecy that basically if you're not celebrating the Feast of Booths, you won't get water. You won't get the rain that causes your harvest to come. And so because, because of that um, kind of connection, they added an element to the Feast of Booths, which was um, they wanted to make the Feast of Booths specifically about praying for the rain that was to come in the next um, rainy season. And so they added a little element to, um, the, to the festival. I think because of this passage of Zechariah, the feast becomes associated with prayers for rain for the upcoming season. And what would happen would be in the morning of the feast, um, during, throughout the feast, the eight days of the feast, in the morning the priest would actually go down to the pool of Siloam, which you know of from other um, parts in the Gospel of John. So the priest goes down to the pool of Siloam, and he has a silver pitcher that he fills with water from the pool of Siloam and then walks back up to the temple and enters through the gate that's known as the water gate. And it's called the water gate because that's where they bring the water up for this particular um, festival or this particular celebration. They bring it up through the, the water gate and they have people lined, other priests lining with those, you know, those curly ram horns, the shofars. They have the, you know, the, the street is lined with that, and they're blowing the shofars as they come in with this pitcher of water. Now, normally, every morning at the altar, the priest would offer up a sheep, grain, and oil on the altar, and then 
they would pour wine on the corner of the altar. Um, but this time, during Sukkot, the priest poured the water that was brought up from the pool along with the wine, and he poured it on the corner of the altar, and it was called the drawing of the water ceremony. Um, then after the afternoon sacrifice, a party would start in the temple courtyard. So you've got the temple, then you've got this courtyard around it. And what would happen is this party would start in the courtyard um, after the afternoon sacrifice. And a huge crowd gathers. Everybody's there for the Feast of Booze. They're gathering. And they would set up these enormous candelabras that were over 100 feet tall all around the courtyard. If you were a young boy at this time, you might have the privilege of being selected to be one of the kids who climbs the candelabra over 100 feet in the air with a torch to light the candelabra all the way up until you have this courtyard with these flaming candelabras just kind of ringing the place and this incredible light. The whole thing is blazing uh, with light. And then the, they had Levitical bands. You know, you have the Levites. So within the Levites, there were musicians and you had Levitical bands that begin playing in the courtyard until the place is just full of rowdy, rowdy music. Um, they would play the music and the music was meant for dancing to, but it was kind of mingled with psalm singing. So, you know, you're singing psalms. If you can imagine the psalm singing you're doing with people dancing and the lights going, and then the dancing, and this is, and I'm not making this up, <laughs> the dancing, one of the key elements, like the, the pinnacle of the dancing was when it turned into acrobatic tricks. And you would have like basically feats of gymnastic prowess going on throughout the whole courtyard. Um, so you know Gamaliel, um, we're told uh, Gamaliel is the guy who, at whose feet Paul um, was raised up, or Saul, um, as a young man, was a disciple of Gamaliel, this great and famous rabbi. Well, Gamaliel had a son, um, I'm assuming probably the same age as Paul, and if Paul was brought up at Gamaliel's feet, this is probably like one of Paul's best friends. Um, Gamaliel has a son, his name is Shimon uh, ben Gamaliel, and he um, is preserved, I believe it's in the Talmud, where it describes um, he, how he distinguished himself one night at the Feast of Booze. Um, he distinguishes himself later as a great rabbi and becomes famous as a rabbi, but the thing that really set him apart was one night at the Feast of Booze, he was able to juggle eight flaming torches with one hand without letting them touch one another and then finish it off with a handstand on two fingers. Um, so, so it kind of gives you a feel for like what this party was like. Like it, this is just this amazing party. The party went all through the night until the sunrise. And the, in the Mishnah, which is um, preserving this tradition just a little bit shortly after, in the Mishnah there's a saying, this is a Jewish text, and it says that one who had never witnessed the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing had, had never seen true joy in his life. All right, so in their understanding, this was like the most spectacular, overwhelming moment of joy uh, that you could possibly imagine. So this is why I said that the Feast of Booze was probably the most popular of all the feasts. This was the one you, you really had to make. And so, all right, so given that then, I think it's really striking to have in that context, and this is at the last day of the feast, at the culmination of the whole thing, and it all culminates with this one um, celebration of sunrise at the very end that everybody gathers together for the sunrise at, on the, at the end of the feast. And it's, it's right there that Jesus stands up and it says, says this, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So it's really striking. In the middle of this drawing of the water ceremony, they're praying for water. They're asking God to send the water, the rain, for the coming season. They're having this phenomenal party, and it's the, it's the culmination of the greatest joy you could imagine. And at the end of all that, Jesus stands up and he says, actually, if you're thirsty, you need to come to me. I am the one with the true water. They are, they are just like the um, Samaritan woman at the well in chapter 4 of Gospel of John, where they're asking for water, but they don't know about the water that they actually truly need. Jesus said uh, to that Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. She's thirsty, she's asking for water, but she doesn't understand the true water. And Jesus says, I have the water that you actually want. Jesus is the living water. So, okay, so let's unpack that for a moment, just a little bit. What does he mean by living water? What does he mean to say that he is living water? Well, there's physical life and death, and then there's life and death that goes beyond this. Okay, there's two layers of life and death. There's physical life and death, and then there's a life and death that goes beyond the physical. And we already sort of know this. You don't actually have to go to church to kind of have a little bit of a sense of the, the reality of this. We have a way of describing times that are most enjoyable or most poignant as the times when we feel truly alive, right? Uh, when you're on vacation, you say, this is truly living. This is, this is the life, right? There's, there's normal life, there's me at the office life, and then there's me at the condo life, or, or, or me at the lake cabin life. And this is, this is the real life. Like, I think if you go to you know, your average lake cabin, at least three out of four have to have some little sign on the wall somewhere saying, like, this is the real life, or this is truly living. So, so we, have a, a, we have innate a, a sense of the difference between like regular life and then there's, there's a different kind of life that is more than just biological life. I think of Mel Gibson as William Wallace in Braveheart and his quote, every man dies but not every man really lives. And then that becomes everybody's senior quote for the next 15 <laughs> years. Uh, but but there, there, we know that there's a difference between just mere biological life and then there's some sort of life that, that actually goes a little bit beyond this life or maybe far beyond this life. There's being physically alive. We intuitively feel that there's more to life than just biological life. And what we find out now is that this is a biblical truth. It's not just something that, that we feel. It's a biblical truth. Um, though I don't think we understand it quite right until we come to a more Christian understanding of this. So start, start with death. Think of it this way. There's physical death, and then there's spiritual death. There's, there's physical death, which we all know, biological death, and then there's a deeper death. There's a death that is being cut off from God. Ephesians 2.1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In our sin, we might have biological life, but we are cut off from God. We have spiritual death. Or Ephesians 4.18, um, those who are living in sin, he says, are alienated from the life of God. Again, they have biological life. But if you're living in your sin, you're cut off from the true life, that life that you crave, that, that sense of like, this is what it would be to be truly alive. That's life in God. Colossians 2.13, you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. To be living in your sin 
cut off from God is spiritual death. The men who don't uh, truly live are those that are living cut off from the life of God. And this spiritual death, we're told in Scripture, culminates in the ultimate death, which is the second death, Revelation 21.8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, that's the real, true, ultimate death when spiritual death culminates in eternal death, being cut off from God. So spiritual death culminates in the eternal judgment of hell. But then you have the opposite, right? There, there's there's um, spiritual death, but there's the opposite. There is spiritual life. And I think this is the thing that we're craving when we always talk about this kind of life that is more than just biological life. It's the life that we have, um, that it's the life that Jesus offers, spiritual life. John opens his gospel this way, John 1, 4. That's how John introduces Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This, this life that we crave is a life that is in Jesus, and he comes with it to give it to others. Or as Jesus explains in John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Um, Jesus came with the stated purpose of taking this life that was in him, this life that was overflowing inside of him. He came here with that overflowing life in order to give it to us. And when you have life from Jesus, you have life overflowing from your own heart, life pouring out from your own heart. Um, think, think of it this way. Um, a, in, in the ancient world, um, a city, one of the things that makes a city like really powerful is when the city has um, a well inside of it. Because when water is coming up inside of a city, it means you can lay siege to that city, but they can resist for a long period of time, right? If there's no water in the city and you lay siege to it, they're going to have to quit pretty quickly because they're, they're going to all um, die of dehydration. They need the water. But when you have water, a well inside, then suddenly it becomes something that can be preserved and last for a long time. And Jesus says... When you have him, you have life springing up inside of you. You have that life. And just as spiritual death culminates in a second death, spiritual life culminates in eternal life. John 3, 16, right? Our, our most famous verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. Eternal life. That is, take life and multiply life by eternity. Take life and multiply life by infinity. Um, I, uh, I can hearken my mind back to um, some struggling years in college where I managed to get through calculus, which was not my shining moment. But I, I do remember the one thing that sticks with me from calculus is the way that um, incredible things happen when you multiply anything by infinity right? That, that's when all of a sudden amazing things happen and you can figure out how to get people on the moon and whatnot. When you, when you understand what it looks like and the impact of multiplying anything by infinity. And the thing that's really incredible about that is it doesn't matter the size of this. This, this size of this number becomes pretty much irrelevant, okay? It just has to exist as soon as it's multiplied by infinity and then this thing that, that's incredible happens where the number just explodes. Well, Jesus says, I come to give you eternal life. Take your life and your life, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter the size of your life, 
because it's going to be multiplied by infinity. It's going to be made eternal, and it overflows, and it becomes this incredible life that flows out of you. Eternal life is life multiplied by infinity. Now, this, this is actually, I think, a common line of argumentation where, when Jesus says, I'm the water of life, where, where he shows up and, and he says, I'm, you're thirsty, I'm water, all right? He, he, does, he does this throughout the Gospel of John. As I said, I'm kind of like pulling from all these different little bits in my series on John. And, and this is a, a move that he makes a number of times. Um, so, for instance, he shows up, people are hungry, so he multiplies the loaves, right? He multiplies the loaves um, and feeds this starving crowd with the bread that they're hungry for. But then when he gets done, he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You have this hunger, I fed it. But you need to understand that this, this thing that you're craving for, I am the actual thing. You want bread, you think you want bread, you actually want the bread of life. And it's the life that's in him that they actually really truly want. Uh, John 8, 12, I am the light, right? It's dark around you, you're lost. You cannot find your way. You cannot figure out what you should be doing. I'm the light. Um, or in John 10, 7, he's the door, right? You feel trapped in, you're locked, you can't get out. He says, I'm the door. I'm the door that you're actually looking for. John 10, 11, he says, I'm the shepherd, right? You feel like you need a guide, somebody to actually care for you and take you and lead you. I'm the shepherd you're actually looking for. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the light, he's the true vine, he's the resurrection and the life. And he says this throughout the Gospel of John. Again and again, he calls himself the thing that you're looking for. I am this, I am that. And it really comes down to what, what I think John is revealing is that Jesus, when he's saying, I am the bread, I am the light, I am the water, I am the resurrection, what he's also telling us is, I am the I am. He's the I am. He, he's the one who just is. He is God and the life of God brought to us to, to um, fill every need, to satiate every need that we actually have. And you can put pretty much whatever you want as the direct object to that I am, and he is that for you. Um, all that mankind is searching for, hungering for, thirsting for, longing for, all of it finds its true fulfillment, its lasting and satisfying fulfillment in him, the one who is. He is the I am. He is the one who is. And, and now in, in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, eternal life. He is that. And, and you receive that, and he says it's there for you for all who believe in him. All the, the essence of the Christian message then is here's the one who is, and he is all the things that you're looking for, and you simply receive that, by believing in him. He is the I am, and, and receiving that by faith is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Receiving that, resting in that. All Christian faithfulness is rooted in receiving this truth by faith. So what I'm trying to describe here is the, um, the complete and total sufficiency of Christ. Not just, the, not just the fact that his death is sufficient to atone for all your sins, which it obviously is, but the fact that Jesus, the person, Jesus Christ, is so infinite in his life, the life that is in him, that his life in you, which you receive by faith, is the overflowing answer to everything that you're looking for. 
Remember, he is the I am, and you can put whatever you're searching for as a direct object, and he is that. His overflowing life is the answer to all that you are searching for. So I, I, I'm referring to this as the sufficiency of Christ. And, and a lot of times we'll talk about this as the sufficiency of Christ as like he, he atones for all your sins. But I'm describing a sufficiency that goes beyond that. It's that he fills your whole life. Okay? Um, so humor me for a moment. This is a brief theological sidetrack. Um, you may have heard um, what theologians refer to as the doctrine of divine simplicity. If you get into systematic theology texts and you talk about the nature of God, this is one of the things that theologians will spend a lot of time geeking out on, which is the, the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, and in a very simple summary, I'm, I'm summarizing it uh, in a very, at a very basic level, probably overly simplistic, but, but I think it's, it's worth um, spending a moment on. The doctrine of divine simplicity says that you, you can't divide up the divine nature. You, you, can't, you can't, God's eternal essence, you can't take it and like chop it in half and divide it up. Um, it, you can't divide the, um, the divine essence. So whatever God is or wherever God is, all of God is that or is there, okay? You can't ever take a part of God and act like this is just a part of God because every time you grab a part of God, it's all of him. You, 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 can't, you can't divvy him up. Um, now, there's, there's quite a lot to say about this doctrine, but I just want to point out one little implication. Okay, wherever God is, all of God is there. Whatever God is, all of God is that. So that means that God's omnipresence is not like um, his omnipresence, the fact that he is everywhere where we go. It's not like him being this huge ball of dough that we can roll out across the whole universe, okay? Um, I think as a kid, I would imagine God's omnipresence, like a part of him is here. But in, in, according to the doctrine of divine simplicity, you can never have a moment where just a part of God is here. Wherever God is, all of God is there. So God is not present here by having a piece of him here. He's present here with having his entirety here. All, all of God is here. God is om not omnipresent here with us this morning by having one small part of him here while the rest of him is busy elsewhere. Wherever God is, the entirety of God is there. Now, apply that for a moment. Take that and apply that for a moment to what we were just saying about Jesus and the life that he gives. Okay? Jesus Christ has in himself eternal, infinite, overflowing, all-sufficient life. And that life that he has is given to you in the gospel. When you receive the gospel by faith, that life is given to you. And then, via the doctrine of divine simplicity, which I was just describing, wherever that life is, all of that life is. Wherever that is, all of it is there. You don't have a small piece of Jesus. You have the entirety of the life of Jesus. I can remember as a little kid, um, you know, being told that Jesus, Jesus is my friend and, I could, and prayer was this way that you could just talk to Jesus and he would be your best friend. And that's, and that's I think, how I conceived of it, which was really great as a kid and I could talk to Jesus all the time and everything until one day when I realized this kid next to me thinks that Jesus is his best friend too and it actually got me kind of mad because we had something, right? And it, and it, it had seemed like a betrayal of this, this relationship that I had. But it, that was a, a mistake on the, this understanding of the doctrine of divine simplicity. 
wherever he is, all of him is there. And it doesn't matter that somebody else has this relationship with him. It does not take away anything from me because what we have is eternal, infinite, overflowing life. Okay, so where that life is, all of that life is, and what Christ is, he exhaustively is for you. And the fact that there will be tens of billions of saints who share in that life does not mean that you're getting one ten billionth of that life, right? You're, you're getting the entirety of it. All of that life is for you. You experience all of that life. And that's why I think we need to understand the incredible sufficiency of the life that we have in Christ. It means that the life that Jesus, um, the life of Jesus is not just sufficient to lift someone up who's at the very bottom of life, like the Samaritan woman at the well, right? You get the impression that she's definitely at the very bottom of her life. Everything has, has left her. Everything has failed her. And Jesus comes and says, I've got the water of life for you. But, but the thing is, is Jesus can also come to somebody who's at the very top of their life, sitting there at the Feast of Booze, experiencing the most amazing moment of their life. And he says, and I actually have more than that. I have infinitely more than that, and I am still the water of life that you're looking for. His life exceeds the very best that the world has to offer, like those uh, at the peak of celebrating the Feast of Booze. Now, as, as good Protestants, you know, as good Reformed Protestants, I think we understand the sufficiency of Christ with regard to our salvation. Um, but I want to press on how this sufficiency works its way out in the rest of our lives. Paul, Paul tells us, Colossians 2.6, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So in the same way that you receive Him, that should affect and, and, and put its stamp on the way you live your life, you sh- the way you walk your life out. Um, now, how did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? And again, I'm, I'm coming speaking to you as an audience of of uh, uh, a reformed congregation. And so you have a, a good appreciation of the fact that when, when Christ came to us, we were dead corpses. When Jesus came to save you in your spiritual death, you were, uh, you were spiritually dead. You were a corpse with no life uh, to offer. And just like Lazarus in John 11, you contributed nothing to your salvation but the ripe smell of death. That, that's, what, that's what you brought. And then he puts his life in you and he brings you to life. He brings you to spiritual life. So you're saved totally by the work of God, not by what you did. You you were saved by him giving you uh, this life. But having been saved, how do you then walk? Having been saved, how do you then walk? Uh, Paul tells us, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so then walk in him. So walk in him. Um, I, I think this is tough because we know that having been saved... We're now called to obedience, right? Uh, the great, in the Great Commission, which is the, the order to go out and preach the gospel, baptize them, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So we're saved, we're baptized, and, and then we're supposed to go out and obey everything that Jesus said to do. So as Christians, we're supposed to obey. We're supposed to um, do what Jesus told us to do. Now the temptation is to, is to think of that, um, those two pieces. You get saved and then you go and obey. The temptation is to think of that salvation is grace, but then after we're saved, we're supposed to obey, so then we shift to sort of work mode. We, we shift gears into this life of works. But it's really important to understand that obedience for a regenerated Christian is fundamentally different than obedience outside of Christ. 
Okay, obedience for, for this person, and they are called to obey. They're ca- called to go do the works that Jesus has commanded them. But I want to argue that it's a very fundamental kind of obedience because of everything that I just described about the life that is in us. Um, obedience for a regenerated Christian is fundamentally different than obedience outside of Christ. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You obey from a position of grace and spirit-filled power, okay? Which is a very different situation than you are when you're outside of Christ. All Christian obedience flows from resting in the perfect sufficiency of Christ. Now, it might look the same on the outside, all right? Um, This person and this person. This person is regenerated and filled by the life of Christ and the Holy Spirit. This person is outside of Christ, and they're both told to do something. On the outside, it will look pretty identical, probably. But on the inside, it's a very, very different kind of obedience. It's a very, very different kind of move because this person fulfills that commandment, fulfills that commandment by resting in what God has given to him. And the obedience flows out of resting in Christ. Um, let me give an example. Think of a strong impulse in you that you know is sinful but still easily controls you. Okay? An impulse in you that you know is wrong, and yet it still easily controls you. You feel like when it gets a hold of you, you're the rag doll in the gorilla's hand who, who can do with you uh, what, what you what he wants. Um, some strong impulse. It could be an impulse to sexual morality, a lust of some sort. It could be anger, where, where something happens and you just are over, overcome with rage. And that rage controls you in a way that you, you feel kind of helpless. Or a bitterness. There's a, a resentment from something in your past, a person that you deeply despise. And, it, and this bitterness gets a hold of you. And it just can control you um, from the inside out a worldly sorrow, or, or who knows what. We could go on and on listing the kinds of impulses that come over you. Now ask yourself this. Ask yourself this. What are you desiring that Christ is not so much more than that? Okay? What are you desiring that Christ is not so much more than that? Think of Jesus throughout the book of John saying again and again, I am. I am the bread. I am the water. I am the life. Whatever you think that you are looking for, Christ fundamentally is the ultimate satiation of that desire. Now, it may be that it's a a warped and twisted and perverted desire, but that desire made right finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And what do you desire that he cannot make better on? Right? What, what do you want? What, do you, what desire are you controlled by that he could not be the ultimate satiation of that desire? Um, I am the wealth. I am the health. I am the love. What do you need that Jesus is not? And, and what he is, he is eternally and infinitely that for you. He is that multiplied by infinity and for you. So what do you have that he does not actually fulfill? So, so then if you think about it that way, then you realize I can, you can fight lust or you can fight depression or you can fight jealousy. You can fight all of these things with a whole lot of effort and work or you can fight them simply by resting in who Jesus is. And so your obedience is a very different kind of obedience. It's an obedience that, that flows out of resting in Christ. And I think all Christian obedience is rooted simply in resting in Christ in this way and the sufficiency of Christ like this. 
Or let me come, let me come at it from another angle. Um, one of the things that I think can be um, particularly paralyzing is not so much the temptation that lies before you, but the terrible record of sin that lies behind you, right? You, you've got this temptation before you, but you have this terrible past. You have this terrible track record. You have this embarrassing things um, in your past that seem to like just kind of stick to you, and they feel like that's an anchor that will not allow you to clear this next hurdle. And the grief and the sorrow over the mess that you've made of your life can trap you in this little prison house of despair. And we'll get trapped like this all the time. And it's weird because, you know, like you'll see, okay, I'll, I'll be gross and graphic for a moment, but like you can see a 10-year-old boy get exquisite pleasure out of picking his scab, right? And you're like, kid, stop that. That's gross and don't do it. Um, but he finds pleasure in it to just sit and pick at it. And you wonder why would you behave like that? But you think about in your own life, how much do you do that with your spiritual scab? where you can just sit and pick at the things from your past. And it's, it's grotesque, but for some reason, there's some weird kind of twisted pleasure that we get out of um, identifying with those sins and just sitting and picking at them. Um, your past failures haunt you, and the condemnation that you feel from those sins feels like a trap that you cannot get out of. Right? It hangs on to you in this um, impossible-to-shake sort of way. But again, simply understanding who Christ is and what he has done, and then realizing that what he did, he definitively accomplished for you, that's the most freeing thing in the world. That's, you don't have to sit there with that scab. You have Christ. You have the infinite Christ. You have the infinite life of Christ in you, overflowing from you. You don't have to be identified with that. I think of Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Okay, that great moment when he, when he heals Lazarus from, uh, from the dead. And we think of that of our salvation, but I think we need to apply that more often in our lives now, where you'll get stuck on something, and you just need to hear in your mind Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. Step out of your tomb. Step out of your grave. <coughs> Stand up and walk out of it. And he doesn't say, Jesus does not say, Lazarus, roll around in there for a while and feel sheepish and guilty for what you did. Um, you know, mess around in there for a little while. When you feel good and embarrassed, then uh, you can come out. He doesn't say, Lazarus, come out, but keep the grave clothes on you for a while, at least until the, the end of next year so everybody knows what a bad boy that you have been. Um, he simply says, Lazarus, come forth. And then he says, that it's great, the next line is, loose him and let him go, right? Get the grave clothes off, walk out and be a living person because the life of Jesus is now the life of Lazarus. He's been raised from the dead and that's who he is. He doesn't have to identify uh, with the grave clothes anymore. So that means when you have that life of Christ in you, you are free and all of your obedience then from this day on flows not from work and effort and slaving to be a better person, but from resting in Jesus Christ and resting in what he has done for you and who he is, that living water, that infinite, eternal living water, that he is that for you. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the author of life and the giver of all good things. You're the source of every blessing, and you pour out your blessings with such generosity. Father, we're surrounded by the beauty and the joy of your goodness on all sides, and we receive all these things as a small down payment of the joy to come. But Father, we can only look to that joy to come with the eye of faith, and we can only open the eye of faith if you give it. 
So we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us. Open our eyes that we might look clearly to the life that is to come and that we might know that we have that inheritance. Father, create that faith in us that it might become an overflowing well in our hearts that we would fill our town with gospel hope. We pray these things now as your son taught us to pray and we are grateful for all the things that you have given to us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.